2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Jean, we'll boot it!
2: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
0: So you write the books, Gene, and on the business. I understand now, it's a wise man who uh, a wiser woman.
3: Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, here with one of the last episodes before I am back from my holiday and providing you with refreshed and wonderful new content for spooky season. I'm recording this far in the past, so I am I still haven't gone on my holiday yet and I'm exploding a little with all of the feelings about it and the sheer amount that I need to Take some time off from this podcast, but I've been thinking about what the best episodes are to play for you in these re-airings when I don't have any new content to give you. I will soon, no worries. But you know it's spooky season. I'm re-airing these Medea episodes to follow up from the Argonautica. So where best to to go for this final Friday episode before I am back? With then. The Halloween episode I did two years ago devoted to, well, Medea and witches. So today I am re-airing that episode. It's all about witchcraft in the ancient Greek mythology, and Medea specifically, her witchy family. But, well, that episode's a little short for my liking these days, so I thought, why not also tack on the episode about werewolves. So today's re-airing is both last year's episode about werewolves and the episode from the year before about Medea and witches. Just seems the perfect way to really dive deep into the wonder that is October. I do love the spooky. ancient witches, and werewolves. Revisiting past spooky seasons. One can't tell a thorough story of Medea without touching on what makes her unique. She is not just an angry, vengeful woman, and she does not have the powers of a goddess, but she does have powers. Medea is a witch, a witch from a family of witches. So let's start by talking about that family. Magic in Ancient Greece and in their mythology can vary. Later in the ancient world, they started using the word magia, which is where the English word magic eventually comes from. But long before the Greeks had the word magia, or probably magia, as I think about it, anyway, they had other concepts that, in terms of how they saw things then, were considered to be forms of magic. Namely, what they called pharmaca. This is the magic of Circe and of Medea. It's also simply where we get the word pharmacy because this type of magic is the very idea of concocting potions and the like out of herbs and other natural things. Circe and Medea, though very different from one another, both were absolute masters of this craft, members of a small circle in the mythology. This practice of Pharmaca is not widespread in the stories from ancient Greece, these two women are some of the most famous and most impressive examples of masters of Pharmaca. Helios is the sun. He's a titan, really, but he is known as the sun itself. Helios drives his chariot across the sky every day, bringing daylight to the world. According to Diodorus, a man whose version we'll be using a lot today, the sons of Helios are Aetes and Perses. These men are almost always determined to be the sons of Helios, but otherwise the version kind of diverges. And both of these men were known to be exceptionally cruel. Just horrible. Pretty quickly, Perseus has a daughter, though with whom it isn't clear. And this daughter, well, she is a favorite of, I would argue, almost everyone who listens to this podcast. Certainly, she is, based on the requests I receive Quite regularly. Let me tell you all, I'm working on it. But finding information on this ancient soul is harder than most. Because, well, in Diodorus' explanation of this family, Perseus's daughter is Hecate. Hecate, like her father, gives absolutely no fucks. She likes to hunt, our Hecate. But when she's not successful in her hunting, she turns her bow and arrows on the men around her. This I just find entertaining, but then it's safe to assume certain things about men in stories like these, you know, based on, like, everything else I've covered in mythology up until now. Hecate, other than killing men when she can't hunt for herself, is an early user of pharmaca, this use of plants and herbs to perform, well, what the Greeks saw as magic. It's said that Hecate discovered aconite, wolf's bane, or monk's hood, the poison from which the Greeks would tip their javelins and spears. Hecate would test her drugs quite regularly, and she'd test them by mixing them into food, which she'd then give to strangers she encountered, and then she'd just watch. Diodorus even says that Hecate used her drugs and her magic to kill her own father, Perseus, and to take over his throne. Hecate kills him with her drugs, and she takes over. Like her father, she quickly becomes known for her cruelty. I want to believe it was her just taking no shit and standing up for herself, but based on what we know in this version, I would say, no, it's legitimate cruelty and not necessarily just a result of the patriarchy. She seems like actually a villain. But once Hecate has taken over the throne, she marries. And she marries her uncle. Perseus' brother, Aetes. Together they have two daughters and a son. The daughters? Our girls Medea and Circe. As I mentioned at the top, this, again, is all from Diodorus. It is not the be-all and end-all of Medea's parentage or of this family in general. Medea is, as far as I've seen, always the daughter of Aetes, but otherwise it varies greatly. Hecate is not always her mother. In fact, she's quite rarely described as her mother. And Circe is often described as her aunt and not her sister, as is the way in Mel- Madeline Miller's telling of the story. But this version connects all the mythological witches together, which is why it's my favorite. Hecate as this mother witch and her daughters, badass queens Medea and Circe. It's a dynasty. Before we get to the start of our story, though, I want to tell you of another version of Circe's story that I discovered while researching our girl Medea. You see, according, again, to Diodorus, Circe is the one who really mastered this art of making potions of pharmaka. She learned what she could from her mother, but learned even more on her own, through her own research and trial and error. Circe becomes so well-versed in this that she surpasses even Hecate. But Circe is given away in marriage to the king of the Summations, who are sometimes called the Scythians. She kills him. There's no mincing words there, no mention of any sort of life together before she kills him with these drugs that she's become so skilled in. Circe kills her husband and takes over his throne. But... We're told, she is so cruel to her people, once she's become their leader, that she's thrown out of her own palace as queen and she flees to an island off in the ocean, what we know of as her island, Ayaia. This version of the story of this witchy family is interesting. It seems to make Medea into the good one, the nice one, amongst a cruel mother and a sister, both of whom killed men to take over their thrones. I respect a strong, badass woman, but I do believe it's best achieved without murder, you know? And again, this isn't the most common version of the story, but it is the most appropriate for a Halloween special. A mother who kills her father to take over his throne, who has a daughter who kills her husband for the same reason. Both women skilled in magic, witches, sorceresses, testing it on unsuspecting strangers. It's rare in Greek mythology, even rarer when you consider these women are not high up in the godly order. Medea herself is rarely even considered a goddess. What is too bad about this version, though it does connect them all together in this kind of witchy dynasty, is it places Hecate in the same status as Circe in Medea. It takes away the much more powerful goddess of the underworld that she's often considered as. It's an interesting dynamic, though, to look at this family as a full Family line of witches. I feel like I'm repeating myself. I love that they're related in this version, even if their personalities are very different and it's not the most well known version of the story. The fact that it's these three women, this genealogical line of the baddest, most incredibly cruel, and wonderfully impressive women of witchy mythology. But again, Enough about this witch dynasty, Liv. You're going on and on. Today's episode is really about our girl Medea. Our girl Medea, who is not one of the bad ones in this version. In comparison to her mother and sister, when Medea learns Pharmaca and the powers of these drugs and potions, she uses them very differently. Medea uses her powers, her learned skills, to save strangers, rather than harming them or testing on them. Early in her life, before Jason, Medea is good. She is strong-willed and badass. She has a good heart and the skills to succeed in anything she sets her mind to. Medea learns her witchcraft from her mother, making her incredibly powerful and skilled beyond almost all other witches of mythology. She is a force to be reckoned with, and in this version, a force for good. Before Jason. It's said that together, Hecate and Aetes regularly killed or imprisoned strangers. Whether they had any reason for this, I can't quite tell, but they did it often. To the point where Medea becomes known for trying to save or free these strangers from the machinations of her parents. She's known to beg her father to release his prisoners, or by releasing them herself in secret. Medea becomes known for her work in saving people, against all odds, against the cruel Aeetes and equally cruel but far more magical Hecate. Medea becomes so well known for working against the plots of her parents that Aeetes begins to suspect that she's plotting against him, whether in the way she has been, rescuing his prisoners, or worse, plotting his overthrow, just as her mother did against Aeetes's own brother, Perseus. But this isn't the case. Medea isn't plotting to overthrow her father. She doesn't want the throne. While smart, cunning, and skilled like her mother and sister, Medea isn't out for power. She simply wants to save innocent people from the maniacal ways of Aetes and Hecate, from their prisons and executions. But regardless of her true intentions, Aetes is threatened by his daughter, seriously threatened. As I said, he believes Medea is plotting against him to take him down, so he sets guards to watch his daughter, to keep an eye on every move she makes. Medea is a strong, smart woman, though, and she realizes immediately what's happening. The guards barely have any time to watch over Medea before she's escaped her father's watchful eye, fleeing to the land of her grandfather, Helios, by the sea. It's still in Colchis officially where her father Aetes is king, but far enough away that she isn't being watched. There, wandering along the shore in her grandfather's realm, Medea meets the person who will change everything for her, who, through his narcissism and manipulation, his own cruelty, will transform her from the powerful, badass good witch that she is, saving people from the violence of her own family, into the woman we know today. A woman known for her magic and for the way she uses her magic in deadly ways against anyone who crosses her. Fucking Jason. On the shores outside her father's kingdom in Colchis, Medea meets Jason and his crew on the ship, the Argo. Aptly named, the Argonauts, his crew. Colchis, I should say, is also in modern-day Georgia. Medea, therefore, is a foreign princess. She's from the East, she isn't Greek. And as you all know by now, when you aren't Greek, you're considered a barbarian, a foreigner. Medea meets Jason, this Greek who's arrived on her shores and is immediately sympathetic to him. She does, after all, have a fondness for strangers who are being persecuted. Jason arrives, telling Medea that he needs the golden fleece, a possession of her father's. Medea, we know, doesn't think too highly of her father, and here is this man Jason. He's handsome and charming, and he needs the fleece in order to claim his rightful place on the throne of Iolcus. His story is one that would so easily appeal to a woman like Medea, who wants to help those who need it. And what does her father need with a golden fleece, anyway? He's just greedy and cruel. Medea wants to help Jason. When she falls in love with him, or whether that's something that happened naturally or was influenced by the gods, it isn't clear, but it doesn't really matter, though, either. Medea's motivations can be understood without any kind of love magic going on. She is a good woman, a good witch, who wants to help this stranger who's arrived on her shores. Meanwhile, according to Apollonius of Rhodes, who famously gave us the story Jason and the Argonauts, Jason has been told about a woman on Colchis, one who's been raised in witchcraft and has all the skills needed to help him succeed in gaining the Golden Fleece. He knows what he's looking for, a woman who's been taught by Hecate herself. Jason has been told that if he can persuade this woman to help him, he will not have to fear defeat in this contest. I think it's clear who has purer motives here, who is the hero of the story, and who is the villain. Spoilers, Jason is not the hero, no matter what the books tell you. So Medea does help Jason. Whether she needed to be persuaded isn't clear. She wants to be helpful, especially to strangers. I imagine all Jason needed to do was explain why he was there, and she would help. She does. She warns Jason and the Argonauts about her father and how he is likely to handle Jason's request for the Golden Fleece. She promises to help them, to do whatever she can to help Jason achieve his goal. Jason, meanwhile, in return for Medea's help, swears an oath to her. Jason swears that he will marry her and keep her as his partner for the rest of his life. Medea tells Jason that she will help him win the Golden Fleece and therefore win his rightful place on the throne of iolcus and he in return swears, swears, that he will marry her and keep her as his partner for the rest of his life. So Medea puts her plan into action. At night, she brings Jason and a group of the Argonauts to the royal palace of Colchis. A small group remains on the ship to watch over. Medea brings them to the palace and speaks to the guards in her own language, one that's foreign to the Greeks that she has with her. And of course, the guards open the gate for her. She is, after all, a princess of Colchis, the daughter of Aetes himself. And so it starts. Jason prepares to complete a set of tasks assigned by Aeetes in order for him to acquire the Golden Fleece, and Medea prepares him for it. Medea tells him everything he needs to do in order to succeed. Without Medea, Jason would be dead ten times over. But that's for another episode, because there is too much to say about this badass woman that is Medea. So next week, Medea, Medea, Medea.
2: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: In the very, very early days of the ancient Greek world, or should I say the mythological ancient Greek world... There was a king in Arcadia named Lycaon. He's in the early days, we know, because he was a contemporary of Noah before Noah, the ancient Greek mythological character Deucalion, who, along with his wife Pyrrha, survived one of the many great deluges that happened across the ancient Mediterranean world in mythology. The Egyptians, and I think the Mesopotamians too, have a flood story. There was almost certainly a real and major flood in the region, given how many stories tell of it. But this isn't the story of Deucalion and Pyrrha and the Great Deluge, it's the story of one of the very first werewolves, if not the official first. Lycaon, like I said, was a king of Arcadia, and he had 50 sons. Yes, 50. All from a number of wives, too. Seems like he was a real family man. According to some versions, Lycaon is also the father of Callisto, the woman Zeus assaulted, who was eventually transformed into a bear and placed in the stars. I've told her story before. Lycaon, like so many stupid Greek mythological men before him, was a really proud man. He considered himself above the gods. Oh, how many of ancient Greece's most violent and gory stories begin just like this. How did they not learn from those who came before them? Lycaon didn't learn, though because there were none before him. He was the first to test the gods' patience in this way. According to Ovid's telling of the story and others too, Lycaon was so early in the world of Greek mythology that he was part of the early ages of humanity. Ages that described certain types of humans that lived on the earth, who often had to be taken out for their crimes, their actions, their general inability to worship the gods in the way they're supposed to hence the deluge, but first Lycaon. Zeus was so troubled by this early age of humanity that he headed down from Mount Olympus to the earth to see for himself, to see whether they were as bad as he'd heard. Were they all so proud, so full of hubris? Were they all just lost causes, not people who could be helped with their sins? Eventually, in his travels through this age of humans, Zeus arrived in Arcadia, where he found the king Lycaon. Along the way, though, Zeus found that the people were just as bad as he expected or as he feared. As Ovid tells the story in Metamorphoses, he describes Zeus telling the same story to the other Olympians. Zeus tells the Olympians that what he saw down on Earth was so bad, he won't even bother to tell them about it. There was just so much sacrilege, he tells the Olympians. But nothing compared to his arrival in Arcadia at the home of Lycaon, who Zeus describes as a tyrant in his uninviting home. It was evening when he reached Arcadia, he tells the others, and night was about to fall. He told the Arcadians that he was a god, or he made it known to them in some way, and so they worshipped him in response. Lycaon saw this and laughed at the Arcadian people, heckled them for their worship of the god. He thought it was nonsense, pointless. He certainly wouldn't join in on the worship. He would only mock it. But the mocking only lasted so long. Lycaon instead let his pride, his overall shit personality, take control of his plans. He would test the god, test Zeus himself. Lycaon sought to test Zeus and his godliness. Just how divine was this man, he thought. Was he entirely infallible, or did he have some humanity, deep, deep down? Oh, how many stories do we have of humans testing the gods? They always go about it the same way, and it always has horrific results. But again, Lycaon was the first. He started this shall we call it a trend, of testing the gods with a feast. Who exactly it was that Lycaon kills, cut up, and attempted to serve as dinner to Zeus varies between versions of this tale. Did he kill a hostage he had from whatever recent war or battle might have taken place? According to Ovid, it was a hostage sent to him by the Molossians. Or was it his own son, a boy named Nictimos. Or perhaps his grandson, Arcas, the son of Callisto and Zeus. Whoever it was that Lycaon killed for his plan to test the god, Zeus, he did it mercilessly, before cutting the poor man into pieces and roasting him in the fire, and finally serving him on a platter to Zeus, who was at Lycaon's table for dinner as a guest. Zeus was not about to fall for this horrific trap The instant the plate has been set down before him, Zeus leapt to his feet and raised his arm high in the air. A lightning bolt appears in his hand and he aimed it. In a split second, the entire palace of Lycaon was burnt to the ground. Nothing left but smoldering rubble and smoke. Lycaon, though, wasn't the target of the lightning bolt. He ran as Zeus destroyed everything he had. He ran and ran until he reached some nearby fields. There, in the fields, panting and out of breath, Lycaon found himself howling. He tried to stop himself, to form words instead, but he couldn't. It was only more frantic howling that erupted from within him no matter how hard he tried. Furious, Lycaon's howls transformed as he began to foam at the mouth and growl as the transformation was complete. Fur had grown over his whole body, his limbs transformed, he'd grown pointy, furry ears and fell to walk on four legs. Lycaon, because of his attempt to test Zeus, a stupid mistake, was transformed into one of, if not the first, werewolf. His personality remained unchanged. Lycaon was just as horrible and violent as a wolf than he was as a human, though his anger transferred to the local sheep rather than the humans or even the gods. He was not any wolf, though. His fur was grey, just as his hair had been when he was a human, and his eyes remained the same. They still had their human quality, their fierce gaze. Lycaon was, again possibly, the first instance of a werewolf in the world's mythologies, According to some, there's a werewolf first in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where there's a reference to a former lover having been transformed into a wolf, but Lycaon is certainly the most obvious example, a detailed example of a horrible man transformed into a wolf where he continues to terrorize the region. Lycaon is also where we get the word lycanthrope, literally a werewolf. Lycaon may be the first reference to a werewolf in Greek mythology, but he wasn't the last. Patrons will remember last October when I released an episode of ghost and werewolf stories, but there are more than that. The ancient Greeks didn't necessarily have werewolves as we do now, with the full moon and such. It was more so the general and often temporary transformation that makes these people werewolves. Stories of these transformations come in many forms. Herodotus, the so-called father of history, the ancient Greek who traveled the Mediterranean world documenting the people he met, their customs and beliefs, and who often shouldn't be believed at all, documented a group of people we might now call werewolves. Herodotus tells of the people called the Nuri. He learned about them from the Scythians and Greeks living in Scythia, who explained to Herodotus that every year every one of the Nuri people would transform into wolves for just a few days, before transforming back. Herodotus doesn't have much more to say about this, except that he says he doesn't actually believe this about the Nuri people, but that the Greeks and the Scythians who told him about it definitely believed what they said. Many of the stories from ancient Greece and Rome about what we might now call werewolves are also linked to what we would consider generally ghosts. While ghosts rarely come up in the mythology of the Greeks, they were certainly something many ancient Greeks believed in, believed they'd seen or heard about from others. According to the wildly fascinating and helpful sourcebook Magic, Witchcraft, and Ghosts in the Ancient Greek and Roman Worlds by Daniel Ogden, most of the stories of ghosts from the ancient Greek and Roman worlds fell into a number of categories of death. Categories that are oh so similar to how we understand the concept of ghosts today. Whether you believe in them or not, the explanation of how they might come to be is fairly universal. There are the Oroi, people dead before their time. Obviously this applies to a hell of a lot of people. Basically if you didn't just die of old age you could, in theory, come back as this type of ghost. It seems though these were typically depicted as ghosts of children or babies. Agamoy died before they could be married. Mm. Men could fall into this category, too, but it didn't matter much for them. Women, of course, who died before they were married, essentially didn't live out any purpose to their lives, no matter how long they lived. They didn't get married and therefore didn't have children. What was even the point? Anyway, it was believed that women were far more haunting in this category. Atafoi were people who died and were not properly buried. This was a huge concern in ancient Greece. Burial was incredibly important, and if you weren't buried, you would have serious trouble in the afterlife. Just think about the number of times I've brought up necessary funereal rites. Those who died and weren't buried with the necessary funereal rites couldn't have peace in death. And it's not just about putting their bodies in a hole. There were rites that must have been performed in order for them to pass into the underworld and successfully reach wherever they were headed there. Where exactly in the underworld the dead went varies depending upon the mythology and the time frame, but regardless of that, there was no peace without proper burial. And finally, biothenotoi were those who died by violence. People who died in war or were executed for their crimes. The scariest ones, I would imagine. The dead in this category who were murdered or who died by suicide were, apparently, the most bitter of ghosts. Now, do I have any story examples of this? A couple. They're good ones. The story of Euthymus, and the ghost that most certainly falls under this biophanatoi category comes from Pausanias, the Greek travel writer from the 2nd century AD. Heads up, it includes sexual assault that's a bit more troubling than the usual stories of the gods, so trigger warning, though I don't go into any detail. There is one more story after this, so just hit the button a few times until I'm clearly talking about something different. Euthymus was a man who travelled to Italy and Sicily and landed in Tamesa an ancient city on the Tyrrhenian Sea, but the exact location of which is still a bit of a mystery. There he learns of a story. It's said that when Odysseus and his men were traveling back from Troy on one of their many, many stops along the way, they arrived there in Temesa. One of Odysseus's men got drunk and raped a woman who was, notably, a virgin. For this he was punished. Shocking, I know consequences for one's actions what a concept but it was only because she was a virgin not because she was raped anyway regardless of how shocking it is that a man was actually punished for assaulting a woman this sailor of odysseus was indeed punished he was stoned to death by the locals in Temisa, who were very angry for what he'd done and i mean good for them He was stoned to death and, in death, went on to haunt the absolute fuck out of these poor people. In his ghostly, demon state, he was called the hero. The demon ghost hero laid waste to Tamisa, killing its residents at random and in huge numbers. The haunting of these people got so bad that they thought about leaving Italy entirely. They didn't know what to do but some brave soul sought the advice of the oracle who told them that they couldn't leave the region and instead must appease the ghost. They were told they must build him a temple, and every year give him the best and most beautiful of the city's virgin women. So, ruining every piece of goodwill I personally had given to them, they did as the oracle had instructed, and built the ghost a temple, and gave him their best and most beautiful virgin woman. And for a time, this worked. The ghost was appeased and wasn't killing them all at random all the time. This is when Euthymus comes in. Also, virginity is a shitty construct meant to demonize women who have sex and emphasize their role as straight-up property in a patriarchal world. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. Euthymus travels to Temesa where he was told this story of the ghost they now called Hero, who had ravaged the town before being finally placated with a temple and sacrificial virgins. He was told this story in part because it happened to be that the annual offering was being made at that very moment. The poor woman had already been locked inside the temple to be offered to the rapist ghost. Euthymus, whose backstory we don't know, at least from the portion of the story I have access to, was feeling particularly heroic during his time in Temisa. And good for him, they needed it. Euthymus heard this story about the poor woman about to be sacrificed to this truly horrific demonic ghost. He decided to venture into the temple himself to get a better idea of what exactly was going on in that plagued and haunted town. When he got inside the temple, the woman was, quite unsurprisingly, very happy to see him. We're told that, in this happiness and hope to be saved from her fate, she promises that she would marry Euthymus if he saved her from the ghost. Isn't that always the promise? Anyway, there's the ancient patriarchy coming into play again. Can't save a woman from certain death unless she's promised to become your property in return. Regardless of the shitty way in which it comes about, Euthymus does save the woman before she can be sacrificed to the ghost. Or he plans to, when he'd done away with the ghost. He made his preparations and remained in the temple waiting for it to appear, when it does, we're told, with absolutely no details at all, that Euthymus defeats the ghost in a battle. Of course, what I wish we had is an intricate explanation of what the ghost looked like, how terrifying it was, how exactly a man could so easily defeat a ghost in battle, but we have none of that. Euthymus defeated the ghost which fled the temple, fled the city, and eventually dove headfirst into the sea. Euthymus and the woman, we're told, had a very long and happy marriage. That's kind of nice that, and Tamisa was forever free of the horrible ghost. The women, I'm sure, rejoiced. At the very end of this story, Pausanias tells us that after the death of Euthymus, which may have come by some magical means itself, or not have come at all, there was a shrine there in the city to him and his accomplishments. But it also included a shrine to the ghost Hero, who was depicted there with a wolf skin, or perhaps as a wolf himself. And the shrine had a name inscribed, Lycas, which means wolfy. So there you have it a ghost story that is also a werewolf story. For our final story today, I'm going to leave you with a haunted house. This one comes from Pliny the Younger, the same man who described the eruption of Mount Vesuvius which killed his uncle-dad, Pliny the Elder, so you know he's famous and maybe we believe him explicitly? (laughs) Kidding, don't ever do that with ancient sources. Pliny the Younger tells us about a house in Athens, a very large and spacious house. The house, it seems, has a reputation for being, well, what we would call, haunted. In my source, it's referred to as, quote, a bad reputation and pestilential. Pestilence is always a good sign. The house was notorious. The sound of clanking iron and rattling chains would echo from it during the night. "'Should you be standing near the house, "'the sound would seem far away at first, "'but it would seem to get closer and closer to you "'before it was as though the source of the sound "'was next to your own ear. "'The next instant, the ghost himself would appear. "'The ghost of this old, large house in Athens "'was an old man. "'He was too thin, emaciated with a long, "'scraggly white beard.' Like any good ghost, it was he who was wearing the very same chains one could hear rattling throughout the house, shackles still locked around his wrists and ankles, though they were attached to nothing, and he moved quite freely. People lived for a time in the house in Athens. It wasn't long before sickness, though, and sometimes even death, would follow them for their lack of sleep and the horror they experienced every night. Finally, it became deserted. No one would dare attempt to live there, not with how many people could tell you the ghosts they'd seen and all the terror it induced in everyone. It lay empty for some time. But not everyone who came across the house knew its story. Athenodorus, a philosopher, once arrived in Athens and went in search of a place to live. He found the house and learned how inexpensive it was, Fortunately, he was suspicious, and the entire story was told to him. It didn't deter him, though, for whatever reason. Curiosity? Disbelief? Either way, he took the house and prepared to spend his first night in it. He set out to spend the evening writing. He figured it would keep his mind from the house, and so it wouldn't be able to invent any odd sounds or happenings. But even with how occupied he was... The chain started to rattle loudly around him. He covered his ears, still attempting to block it out, but it only grew louder and louder, and finally Athenodorus couldn't avoid the horrible sounds of the ghost's shackles. Athenodorus looked up from his writing and saw him, the ghost, exactly as described. The man stood above him, stringy beard, hanging low, his body so thin you could see every vein, every bone— he was horrifying. But it seems Athenodorus couldn't be horrified, and he motioned to the ghost to just give him a minute, before going back to his writing, ghost still standing close in front of him. Eventually, Athenodorus couldn't avoid the ghost any longer. He rattled his very loud chains just above Athenodorus' head, so he finally gave in, picking up his lamp and following the ghost. He followed the ghost through the house to the inner courtyard where it, quite suddenly, disappeared. Athenodorus marked the spot. The next morning, he told the city officials about the spot and suggested they dig there. Sure enough, they found the bones of the man who haunted the home, chains and all, shackles still tightly around them. Bundling the bones up, they took them away and buried them correctly and the ghost never again haunted the oh-so-infamous home in Athens. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I really do appreciate you listening to to these re-aired episodes. They, they make a big difference for me when it comes to download numbers and thus keeping me on the charts and in people's ears. So I really appreciate when you all do that. I try to pick the right ones that are appropriate and far enough back that the likelihood is you haven't just listen to it. Um, So I really I just really appreciate that. And I'm really glad that I can do it for this holiday. And I'm thrilled that I will be soon back in your ears, refreshed and hopefully less tired and anxious and ready to give you some exciting and brand new stuff bookie content. Uh, you are all truly wonderful. I have the best listeners in the world and I couldn't be more grateful. I am Liv and I love this shit.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
1: It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important
2: as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Jean! Eugene Fodor. Jean, was will
2: much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you hide the
0: books, Gene, and Lastor on the business. Well, I understand now. It's a wise man,
2: uh, a wise woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas.
1: Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth.
2: Freeze, Americano!
1: Gene! Huh? Oh! Run!
2: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.